Well, good morning. I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Ezekiel. Our study is still in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. We'll be continuing it. But I want to start at a place that I think is going to help us jump into the text this morning, to our study this morning. You know, in church, using the word lost probably brings to mind immediately the those who are lost, who are separated from Christ, who have not experienced salvation and the joy of well, the joy that comes with salvation, the joy that uh, David prayed for in the midst of his sin to be restored to him, for the fellowship that comes through the body. So we enjoy the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And yet, as we'll see this morning, there is another term, I guess maybe not another term, another meaning behind the term lost that is rightly and appropriately applied to us at times. And as to that meaning, we're going to give attention this morning. But there's also a great context behind the text that we're going to look at this morning in Matthew, a, a historical context, one that we are I'm really un being unfair about this. All we're going to do is read two verses for what could be two or three studies in and of themselves. It's a study on the concept or the theme of shepherd that so thoroughly permeates the Old Testament. That leads into the New Testament. There's, and then that familiar passage in John 10 of Jesus as the good shepherd. Ezekiel 34 is a, it's a sobering text. It's one that deals with the false shepherds, the false leaders of Israel, particularly the religious leaders, those who have led Israel astray, who have allowed her to go astray for so long. And God had serious words of indictment against those religious leaders. But in the midst of that, he offers great hope and great promise. And it's that hope and promise that we're going to look at this morning and be reminded of this morning. Down in verse 15, we read, I will feed my flock. I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, Strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. I want you now to turn to Matthew chapter 18. Picking up in our study, we're in verses 12. And I'm going to read verses 12 through 20. And I want you to have this context in mind because this is a text that we'll look at this morning, but it's a text that often has a different connotation, at least in many church traditions, one that does not necessarily have that seeking, that shepherding aspect to it. We read in verse 12 of Matthew 18, Jesus speaking and saying, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? 
if it turns out that he finds it. Truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that have gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should be lost. If your brother sins, go to him. Show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take two or three more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall, be, shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything, that they may ask, and it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Pray with me as we begin our study this morning. Father, thank you for the theme we've been reminded of in our scripture reading, even in our worship this morning, that you seek and save the lost. Father, it begins with those who are far from you. But Father, we praise you and thank you that so many of us gathered here together this morning have been brought near. You have found us. You have called us. You have brought us in to your fold. And Father, we thank you for the ministry we're going to look at this morning. For the ministry of seeking and returning and rescuing those who are your sheep. Father, I pray that you would help us to take seriously to heart the words that were given so many years ago. Father, because it's not a matter of if we will need this, but when we will need this in our lives. And how often we will need to pay attention, to bring to mind, and to put into practice what we see this morning. In your name, amen. If you've been with us for any amount of time, Jesus is answering the question here in Matthew 18, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? If you go back to the beginning of chapter 18 and you remember the context, sheepishly drawn forth from the disciples was what they had been talking about earlier that day. Which of us is daddy's favorite? Which of us is Jesus's favorite? And then from there, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And as Jesus pried that answer from them, he begins to answer that question, one that they were too afraid, too embarrassed to actually verbalize in front of him until he drew it out. And as he began to answer that, he, you may remember, went back and first identified spiritual neediness, that spiritual poverty, what we see at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount as that component which makes one great in the kingdom, is being weak. Remember the words of Paul, the weak things he has made strong to confound the wisdom of the wise. And we noted that this is in particular because that neediness, that spiritual poverty, manifests itself in childlike dependence. And it becomes the perfect platform from which God's greatness can show. All the more because these are those who are weak, who acknowledge their weakness. 
who recognize their weakness, who come to him in prayer and in supplication, daily asking, Lord, help. Jesus then pivoted from there to a discussion we looked at last week that we got to listen in on, to a discussion of the seriousness of sin. Because of the harm that sin does to those who are within the kingdom, to those who are spiritually needy. But it wasn't just a warning not to cause others to sin, you remember. It was also a warning to each of us to examine our lives, to weed from our lives those things which do cause us to stumble, those areas of sin we do have in our life. We saw the urgent necessity of working sin out of our lives. And it's in this context now that Jesus turns to what we might rightly call a divine search and rescue mission. And he's really giving us a paradigm for divine search and rescue and how we're to put this into practice. And Jesus opens here in in verse 12 with, Uh, that expression that draws the disciples back in and says, what do you think? Uh, What do you think? And this should remind us once again that Jesus is addressing the question the disciples set before Jesus concerning who is the greatest. Jesus is continuing to answer that question. He's continuing to dialogue with the disciples. He's answering and highlighting what it means to be great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' answer thus far is highlighted that to be great is to be a servant of all. And again, that those who are most important in the kingdom are those who are most needy. And to help illustrate this point even further, Jesus presents this new mindset. And he presents this mindset, this what somewhat of a topsy-turvy, upside-down way of thinking. That it's the weak who are important. It's the spiritual needy who are important in the kingdom. And he presents it first with a question. He wraps it in an illustration, and then he follows it up with practical application. And we're not going to get all to all of it this morning. We're going to just get into the first, the introductory part in verses 12 through 14. But notice the logic of it. It's not merely enough that we not cause someone else to sin, like we looked at last week, particularly one of the needy ones. It's not enough that we work out sin. We now must be actively doing something, be actively engaged in something. And what is that something? Well, this action of seeking to rescue and to restore, to find the lost. And what follows is the introduction to this spiritual search and rescue. The disciples of Jesus' day, as well as those since, and includes us, are provided here with this field guide. And again, like I've prayed, it's not a matter of if we're going to need this manual. It's a matter of how often are we going to need to refer to this manual in our lives. In verse 12, Jesus pulls out the canvas and begins to paint a picture. A picture that may be a bit foreign to us today, since there's not many of us who spend time with sheep. I said not many of us, I know there's a few. 
But this was not only a common scene in the ancient Near East, it's a common metaphor throughout Scripture. And, and there's a temptation when you come to these passages to want to start talking about sheep, about how dumb they are, about how difficult they are. I saw a, someone sent me a video and said, here's the example of my Christian life, and I couldn't help but agree. It's a sheep that's trapped. And finally, after what it sounded like it was hours of effort of getting the sheep out, it leaps out of the ditch, one jump, and it leaps into another ditch and is stuck again. And while all of those things may be true, that may be a true illustration of what our spiritual walk feels like at times, as you look at Scripture, as you pay attention to the shepherd and the sheep metaphor that appears over and over and over again, something becomes readily apparent. The emphasis is not on the sheep. The emphasis is on the shepherd. Yes, there's things to learn about the sheep. There are secondary, tertiary things to learn, but the emphasis, the importance, where our focus should begin is on the shepherd. Whether human or divine. We read that in Psalm 23 this morning. David, the king, the one who has these enormous promises covenanted with him, puts himself in the place of a sheep and draws our attention to the great shepherd and the blessings that flow from the relationship and from the care of the great shepherd. And again, it's God as shepherd that is central to our theme here. The emphasis, whenever we find that sheep-shepherd analogy, is almost always upon the shepherd. And so it is to the role of the shepherd that we will direct most of our attention this morning. Now, I know what some of you just did. Some of you just took a deep breath and relaxed. Because you get the morning off, at least you think. Because this is about the shepherds. Well, not so fast. I invite you to consider a few passages by way of instruction this morning. Specifically with an emphasis on the care we're to have for one another. The shepherding, you might say, we do for one another. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens, thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Philippians 2.4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. Hebrews 10.24, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And just in case you thought you hadn't been included yet, James 5.19-20, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is instruction for all of us, each of us, every one of us sitting here this morning. Yes, there is an additional weight and soberness in this passage for those who are called as under-shepherds to care for the flock of God. Yes, it may be heightened, but that does not negate the importance of this passage for each of us the instruction for each of us this morning in our care and shepherding of one another under the great 
and the ministry of the great shepherd. So what is it that this sheep and shepherd analogy present, this illustration that Jesus has drawn? Well, at its face value, a shepherd, while counting his sheep, while taking inventory of the sheep, maybe the beginning of the day, maybe upon resting and walking them from one grazing pasture to another, has come upon the realization that there is a sheep missing. And the the exact number of sheep here, 199, one, is not so important other than to show the contrast between the number lost or the quantity and the percentage lost versus the percentage that remain. And, And perhaps also to help emphasize that what is illustrated here this is a little bit different. What we're, what we're looking at in this passage is different than that day-to-day encouragement that we're always to be about, that day-to-day fellowship that we're always to be about. This is a little bit unique. Because if, if we're talking about the day-to-day just encouragement and struggles we have, then there's a hundred who are lost, not one. And so there's something heightened here. There's something unique about the lostness of this sheep. It's reference to something more serious. This is sin that has not been repented of. It's sin that they are not struggling against. They have given into. They are enjoying their sin. This is sin that may draw one out of fellowship with other believers. It may isolate them. It may, in fact, do great harm and damage to their physical and spiritual well-being and perhaps even to the rest of the sheep at large. So what does the shepherd do when he realizes that one is missing? He's taken stock. He understands. He sees one is missing. He sets out in search of the one. I like what one commentator noted. He said, shepherds actually became rather skilled mountaineers in Israel as they had to hunt high and low because sheep had a way of finding themselves in unique predicaments that required extra skill to extricate them from. But he sets out in search of the one, leaving the 99, the others behind, not abandoning them, but rather his focus and attention has shifted. Priorities have been altered. The one in need of restoring has become more important than the 99 in sense of urgency. Again, it doesn't mean that they're loved more or the 99 are loved less, but rather in prioritization of the sheep, the one missing needs time and attention and has become temporarily the most important sheep. And to help bring this illustration home, if you have children or grandchildren, this happens, doesn't it? One child may become more important, more significant at any given moment than the other children. Again, it's not that you love the others less or think of them as unimportant, but the greatest in terms of attention, need, and focus and effort is the lost or the hurting one. I remember a late night game of flashlight tag when I was about 12 years old, and my youngest brother introduced his forehead to the corner of a chimney and the result was a rather significant head wound. I carried him home and it was ugly. There was a, there was a good amount of blood and I remember knocking on the door and, and when I knocked I tried to comfort my parents saying it's probably not as bad as it looks. It tells you how bad it was. Well tending to him, caring for him, getting him medical help became of the utmost importance. My importance became very little at that moment. It's not that my parents didn't love me, but taking care of the hurting one, the one in need, became the most important. He was, at that moment, the most important child. 
In fact, it would have been parental malpractice to do otherwise. To try and give us all the same amount of attention and concern at that moment. But notice, too, the focus of a shepherd. There is a tenderness. There is a seeking. There is an urgency. There is a rescue involved. That needs to be in focus as we look at this passage. It will become very important as we move next week into the following verses. Because the shepherd isn't setting out with a chip on his shoulder. He's not setting out in anger or frustration with the sheep. How do I know that? Well, because I've seen what Jesus does when he looks over all of Jerusalem. I've looked what, what it says when he sees them and sees them as sheep without a shepherd, lost. What does he do? Does he get angry at the fact that all the sheep are in sin? No, and yet he hates sin. We know that. He weeps over them. He has compassion for them. And that's the attitude of the shepherd. They don't approach the lost sheep as some second-class member of the body. We, likewise, are not coming as judges to evaluate the one sinning at this moment. Rather, we, like my bleeding brother in the moment, we are focused on the search and the rescue, the binding up of the wounds. Our commitment to the one we're seeking should be stronger than that of the Hippocratic Oath, which promises to make every effort to heal and to help all who are sick, regardless of status or race, regardless of whether they are enemy or friend. We must apply, the shepherd must apply, whatever spiritual balm is necessary, whatever effort is necessary, in their efforts, in their attempts, to search, to rescue, and to restore one who has lost their way. Regardless of their culpability and whatever caused the stumbling into sin, they now have a severe self-inflicted wound and they're bleeding out. The question is, will you make the effort to get to them in time? You see, there's another great concern here, one that I think we're always in danger of falling into. And that is in even noticing the lost sheep. See, that's the very first thing that happens is he notices that a sheep is missing. And while being lost does not always imply that they're missing from fellowship when we begin to move this application into the church and the body of Christ, it often implies that they're missing from the fellowship. That's often the reality. And it may be easier in a smaller fellowship to notice those who are missing, but it still takes effort still takes time to pay attention, to seek after those, to check on those who are missing, to identify the reasons why. How are you doing in this area? When you show up on Sunday morning, do you even take the time to notice who's not here? The shepherd diligently looks over and counts the sheep. Are you actively looking at who may be missing? Who may be hurting? Who haven't you seen in a while? Who haven't you talked to in some time? And if you've taken notice of them, are you actively reaching out? Are you doing something? Are you setting out on mission? 
And again, it's absolutely a chief responsibility of those who lead the church. There's no abdication of that responsibility. But it's also your responsibility. You're to be part of the work of seeking, finding, and restoring that we see here. Don't jettison that responsibility because you're not an elder, you're not a pastor, you're not a Sunday school teacher. James says, if any of you go and find any of these who have sinned. And while those who are absent are going to be the easiest to notice, again, it still takes effort, it still takes time, while they're going to be the easiest, there is another group that may not be physically absent that are still lost, who have spiritually lost their way, who are floundering, for any number of reasons, it could be overhurt, could be difficulties and tribulations or struggles of this life, could be selfishness, could be some other temptation, and they're lost in sin. They haven't given up coming on a Sunday morning. They haven't given up coming and being around the body, but they're growing more distant. As they've lost their way, as they are clinging to the sin, unwilling to confess it, unwilling to repent of it, unwilling to change. So how do we find these who are lost? How do we even notice they're lost to begin seeking after them? You tell me, what would you do? You don't have to say it out loud. But I want you to think about it. What should you be doing? How would you identify these type of persons? Look to your left, look to your right. How do you know that person isn't one of these? How would you know they are one of those? Well, the simplest answer is we need to be involved in one another's life, don't we? We need to be involved in one another's lives to such an extent that we recognize when something is not right. Elise describes having grown up in, in her church, and she was there from a young age, and she had all of these older women who knew her. And she talks about the blessing that was because she would... She would walk down the halls, and there might be a day where she's walking down. They say, how are you doing? She says, I'm fine. And they say, no, you're not. What's wrong? Do we know one another well enough to know when we're not getting a straight answer? Or when there's more behind the answer? This is part of being with one another. It's part of loving one another. We live in a very individualistic society and it takes a, a bit of bravery to insert yourself into someone's life, especially if you're an introvert like myself. And it likewise takes humility to open yourself up, doesn't it? To be willing to be honest, to build those relationships. But you know what? It gets even harder when there's sin involved. That's why it's so important to begin building those relationships now, to come together as the body, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together for the encouragement of one another, for the building up of one another in the body of Christ, for getting to know one another so that we can recognize when someone is lost, when they're floundering, when they've lost their way. But build those relationships in the times of sunshine and laughter so that when the times of doubt, the time of sin, the time of despair, the time of gloom arrives, it's easier to recognize and seek out one another.
Look with me at verse 13. The shepherd in this illustration finds the sheep. The shepherd is attuned to the number to which one is missing. He knows where to look, where to find the sheep, and he finds them. Before the wild beasts are able to attack, before it falls into a ravine or drowns in a flash flood, and the result is great rejoicing. Not just by the shepherd or the one who has gone on this spiritual rescue mission, but Jesus says in Luke 15:10 that the angels of heaven rejoice greatly over the repentance of sin. And that's what this is. If you follow the train of thought and the context that's developed in this chapter, we know that there was this stumbling that was referred to as sin, and that's what the same lostness is. Having one who is caught up in this sin, they have stumbled into this sin and they're stuck in it. They're lost in it. And so the finding, the restoring, is seeing that repentance of sin, of bringing them back into the fold, into the joy of fellowship. First with the Father and the Spirit, and secondly with the body of Christ. Now when you look at this, when you see that he rejoices over it more than the 99, and you need to be honest here, when you hear that, when you see that the angels of heaven rejoice in heaven over the repentance of a sinner, does it bother you a little bit? Does it bother you that they're more important than you are? At least that's what it seems. I mean, how can the shepherd show greater joy over the lost one than those that did their job and didn't go anywhere? How does he show more joy over that one than the others? I mean, it's not like I'm the one who went and got lost. So it's not fair that they get more attention. And you know that probably shouldn't bother you. That's why we don't say that out loud, right? You know it shouldn't bother you, but it does a little bit. So what do we need to do? How do we need to think about this passage? Why should the angels in heaven rejoice more over them than me when I followed all the rules and didn't get lost? This time. That's actually quite a bit to unpack. But we can start here. This First off, this attitude and response, when I, when I show that, when I think these things, it really just shows me how much more I have to learn, how much further I have to go in understanding God's grace and mercy, and it really shows how little I understand about the kingdom of God. Well, what do I mean by this? Well, let me ask you this. If you had a child who was sick or in the hospital and they recover and come home, do you throw a welcome party and a welcome home party for the healthy children? who never got sick? No, why not? Don't you love the healthy ones just as much? Or maybe you don't like them as much. That's not it. No, you're celebrating the recovery, the restoration back into the family of the one who is sick, the one who is gone. You see, the greater joy, the greater celebration it's, yes, it's this person, but it's not about the person. The rejoicing, the joy is, again, 
because of the shepherd. It's because he's found them. It's because he's restored them. That's where the joy and the rejoicing comes from. Yes, this one becomes the catalyst, but the joy, the rejoicing that we all participate in, that we're all sharing in, is watching a sinner come to repentance and watching the grace of God manifested yet again, watching the kingdom of God shine forth in this world. And that's what we all should be able to rejoice in. It's never been about me. It's never been about you. It's always been about the glory of God. And it's at that moment that the glory of God shines even brighter and calls for greater rejoicing. The angels in heaven are not glorying in a person. They could never do such a thing. They're rejoicing over the work of God and the glory of God manifested through the work of this person. And it happens with me. It happens with you. When we repent over our sin, when we change our ways, we should celebrate greater where the glory of God more clearly or is more clearly demonstrated against the backdrop of sin's darkness. Well, Jesus, you may remember in Matthew 6, he taught us to pray. When he taught us to pray, he asked us to pray for this. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here, Jesus tells us in verse 14, we are given a glimpse into the will of the Father. It is not the Father's desire that any of these sheep, these little ones, be lost. You probably notice I'm not using the word perish. It's probably in every one of your translations. It's because I don't think it's the right translation here. The word translated is perish, apolumi, most frequently does mean to destroy or to perish or to pass away. That's true. But like many other words, it has other nuances and other meanings depending upon the context. Our English words, we have many of them that have multiple meanings. Think of the word trunk and start to think about the number of different meanings that come from that. And so when we look at uses of this term in the Old Testament, when it was translated into Greek, particularly in similar contexts, we find that the term more often means lost, not perish. For example, Psalm 119, 176, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Exact same word, but we translate it as lost. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Or Jeremiah 56, my people have become lost sheep. Again, the same word, the same term. Their shepherds have led them astray. They have made them turn aside on the mountains. They have gone along from the mountain to hill and have forgotten their resting place. Ezekiel 34.4, speaking of the false shepherds, and condemning them, he points out those who are sickly you have not strengthened, speaking of the sheep, the diseased you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. Same term. But with force and severity you have dominated them. So God says, and we open this morning with it in Ezekiel thirty-four sixteen, I will seek the lost. Bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick. 
I would suggest that the right translation here in light of the context, especially the historical context of this imagery, is the term lost. And that perish creates confusion, misses the point, at least in our English language. And it's because this, we see it there right in Ezekiel 34, 16, God's will is that his people care for his sheep and seek them out so that none are lost. Put another way, God's people must show God's concern for caring and watching out for one another. And again, it is certainly the job of the leaders, but not only the job of the leaders of the church. It's a job for every one of us, each of us sitting here. Because again, what does James say? My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We will look more next week into how we begin to apply that. We get a much more practical introduction into this search and rescue template and guide. But for this morning, the question really is just centered on this imagery that we're given is how are you doing? How are you doing in identifying the lost sheep? How are you doing in seeking the lost sheep? Are you paying attention to the bottom of body of Christ? Which, by the way, do you realize what that implicitly requires and demands? How do you know if someone's missing if you're not with them? A lot of people today talk about doing church elsewhere. Friends, they'll post something on Facebook or Instagram, a you know, picture of a beautiful sunrise on the beach. I would have loved to have been there. Saying, I did church this morning, just me and God. Well, that's sweet, but that's wrong. You can worship, you can fellowship, you can pray to the Lord by yourself, but you cannot do church by yourself. You cannot do fellowship by yourself. You cannot obey a huge percentage of the New Testament instructions or Old Testament instructions by yourself. Are you seeking after others? Are you willing to lay aside your, or change your priorities, lay aside your wants and desires to go after others? Are you viewing others as God sees them? Are you weeping over them? Or are you becoming embittered against them? When you go to seek and to save, do you go in judgment or do you go as a shepherd? Do you go to beat them back into the fold or to carry them back into the fold? And then how are you doing it rejoicing? Are you rejoicing over the repentance of sinners? Are you putting the right perspective in place so that you see that great rejoicing, the joy that is given is because of the light of God's kingdom that shines forth, the glory of God that we get to see in those moments. And we would be remiss if we did not address that other category of lost because they're there too. Those who are not part of this fold yet. Are we going out and are we preaching and proclaiming the gospel of Christ to others who are hurting, 
who have not yet had their eyes opened to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our mission. It's our responsibility. That's what we've been commissioned with. There's a lot for us to do here. There's a lot for us to apply. There's a lot for us to think about in these verses. But we have such a wonderful example. As I was thinking about this text, as I was was looking at this, I was struck by how many times the great shepherd has had to go and seek me. How many times in my sinfulness he has so patiently worked to come and seek me. And really it becomes greater motivation as I think about those things, as I consider those things, as I ponder those things. It's really, it's great conviction because I don't do it enough. I'm not diligent enough in this area. So I hope you'll join with me in recognizing the immense privilege and responsibility we have as we love one another, as we shepherd one another in seeking and rescuing the lost. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is you speaking to us. Father, we delight in hearing from you, and we get to do that every time we open your scripture. Thank you that you have so carefully instructed us, so thoroughly instructed, so sufficiently instructed us in your word. Pray that you would help us in the application of your truth. Help us in this area. Help us to to have a better focus on others. Help us to be less selfish, less less self-focused, and more focused on others. Help us to have a better perspective of those around us, the needs of others, taking the time to truly dig in and see how we can be serving one another. Help us as we enter into the rest of this text and we consider what is frequently called church discipline. Prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, help the context that we've looked at this morning and in the previous weeks, help it to provide a a safety net around how we think about this difficult subject in the weeks to come. In your name, amen.